Well, good morning, everyone. It's so good to be here uh, together, to worship together, to get into God's Word together. Um, I'm excited about what we're going to be talking about today. <clears throat> and uh, if you remember from a couple weeks ago, we have started, we started the book of Haggai, and it's only two chapters. So we covered chapter one last time, chapter two this time. And I just want to recap a couple of things that I mentioned in our first uh, session. Remember that I said that prophecy is not some temporary sort of side gig that went on during a period of the Old Testament. That prophecy is something that God has used from Genesis through Revelation. There's something about it in the way that God deals with his people. We need to pay attention to it. The other thing I mentioned was a couple of words from uh, Walter Brueggemann, actually, that helped me classify some of the things that the prophets are doing. And the two words that we used was criticize and energize. The prophets criticize in the sense that they are coming against a way of thinking or something that is wrong. And the criticism is oftentimes a little bit painful. It's radical. It's not just a surface criticism. The second word is energize. That if we, if the people of God respond well to the criticism, there is an energizing that happens that will lift us up in a way that is unexpected. It's a spiritual energy. So that's just a recap of what we talked about before. And Haggai came along in about 520 BC at a time where the temple was, had started to be rebuilt, but it sat for 18 years and nothing had been done. It had been started, but hadn't been completed. So that's our, that's our recap. So I want to start today's topic by talking about a game that when I was a kid, you know, we'd go to these amusement parks, not like Disney World, but the kind where they bring the teacup ride on a truck and it spins around, that kind of amusement park. And there was this game that I really liked to play. It was a machine. And it was called Whack-A-Mole. Anybody remember Whack-A-Mole? Okay. You had a club that looked like this. Thanks to my wife who put this together for me in about 10 minutes. This is the club for whack-a-mole, and it's very simple. You're at this board, and the mole pops his head out, and you whack it. And again, and again. And you've got one second to whack the mole before, he, and you have to beat him down into the hole. What could be better than having a club in your hand and getting to beat something on the head? I mean, it's, you know, the ultimate game. But you know, sometimes, um, you've probably noticed this if you're, around my age, you go through seasons of life where you're the mole. You're the mole. And life gives you the beat down. And you poke your head up thinking, I'm gonna hope over here in this area. And then there's a family problem. Our finances are okay, you lose your job. And then something else happens, and something else happens, and whack, whack, whack. And for some of us, 
in this body, it's a little different. It's a long-term struggle. It's not a lot of things. It's one thing. And you have to wake up every day and face into that. What can happen to you? After a while, boom, boom, boom. What happens? You quit hoping, don't you? You say, I'm just going to stay down. I'm not going to poke my head out of this hole and hope because I'm just going to get beat down. It's so easy to become negative and fearful and anxious and doubtful, isn't it? You know, the message of Haggai wasn't just about rebuilding a temple. That was part of it. It was about rebuilding hope. Rebuilding hope in a people that desperately needed it. Let me pray as we get into the word together. Father, we need to hear from you today. It isn't adequate what I have to say. It's what you have to say. Speak to us, we pray, through your word in Jesus' name. Amen. So it might be easy for us to criticize the people of Israel that returned, the captives that returned to Jerusalem a little bit, because they had been sitting there for 18 or 19 years and the temple wasn't rebuilt. And we could say, hey, come on, guys. What's going on here? But we need to remember the psychological, the emotional, the spiritual damage that happened to them from the captivity. They weren't in Babylon on a vacation. This wasn't a timeshare, the rivers of Babylon. They were captives. They've been dragged from their own country. And you know, there's a Psalm 137. This Psalm was written in captivity. Listen to what it says. By the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion, when we remembered Jerusalem, in other words. Upon the willows in the midst of it, we hung our harps, for there our captors demanded of us songs, and our tormentors mirth, saying, sing us one of the songs of Zion. Wow. Can't even stand up sitting down by the river and weeping, can't sing, hang up the harps, I'm done with that. And then to make things worse, the Babylonians forced them to sing, hey, sing us a song about Jerusalem. Oh, wait, that's that city that is burning rubble that we destroyed. Oops. And so then along comes this decree by King Cyrus that allows the Israelites to come back to Jerusalem. So hope is reborn, right? You're up out of the hole. 42,000 people back in Jerusalem. There was this am amazing emotional scene where the, they started working on the temple. And remember I said some people were weeping and some people were shouting for joy and laughing. And then what happens? They started the temple, 538 B.C., and then this little number, the whack-a-mole, starts up, okay? Boom. You're not going to build that temple. Boom. 
It keeps happening. Finally, they were stopped by force, armed people. So put yourself in their shoes, put your or sandals, put yourself there. They're stopped by force, they're in Jerusalem. And what are they thinking? What would you and I be thinking? Hey, we, we don't want to get kicked out again, okay? We don't want an army to come in here and kill us and wipe us out and take us some, somewhere. If we make trouble, things are going to be bad. So the people were fearful. Let's just focus on rebuilding our houses. Let's take care of our business and build a community. We can think about the temple stuff later because that's just going to get us in trouble. So Haggai comes along after 18 years of this with a wake-up call. The wake-up call is God brought you back here, and number one job is worshiping him. And so this criticism of Haggai comes against the people that, hey, you've been rationalizing, you've been fearful, you've been neglecting what's most important. And the people responded well. The people obeyed. They went to work. And then comes the energizing. And that's what chapter 2 is about. That's what we're going to be looking at today, is this energizing of the Holy Spirit that comes to the people. And I don't know about you, but I think we need that. So Haggai chapter 2, verses 2 and 3, this is God speaking to telling Haggai what to say. He says, speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehoshadak, the high priest, and to the remnant of the people, saying, whoops, wait a minute. Oh, yeah. Sorry. Who is left among you who saw this temple in its former glory, and how do you see it now? Does it not seem to you like nothing in comparison? So it starts out where God is saying, I know what you're thinking. You're looking at this new temple and you're saying that's nothing like the old one. That's ridiculous. Look at how small it is. And so it's important to understand that hope is a fragile thing within us. It really is. And that God understands. He knows. He sees. When you are beginning to do something for the Lord, when you are beginning to do something in ministry, how easily it is to get demoralized, how easy it is to get demoralized. There's a voice that comes along that undermines the value of what you're trying to do. You know, for me, in this teaching role for a long time, every week was the same pattern. Every week I had to do it. I'd start out excited about what God was showing me in the scriptures. I'd write the thing, and then I'd look at it. And there'd be a voice in the back of my head that said, you got nothing. You got nothing. There's nothing there. It's all superficial stuff. And I'd panic a little bit. And finally, I realized the way to respond to that is to say, you're right. I've got nothing, because it isn't about me. It's about the Word of God. It's about presenting the Word of God. 
The Holy Spirit's the one that's got something. He's got the revelation, not me. And so I was able to work through that. But it happens to us. And this is what God is saying. As the people are working and they have a tendency to get demoralized. So this energizing starts in verse 4. But take, now take courage, Zerubbabel declares the Lord. Take courage also, Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. And all you people of the land, take courage, declares the Lord. And work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. As for the promise which I made you when you came out of Egypt, my spirit is abiding in your midst. Do not fear. Wow, so we've been talking about principles of prophetic ministry. Here's one. This exhortation and a call to action. The prophetic ministry calls us out of slumber into action. He says three times, take courage, take courage, take courage. I'm with you. What is the promise that's referred to there? The promise I made you? Exodus 29, 45. I will dwell among the sons of Israel and will be their God. Well, you know, saying do not fear isn't really enough. It isn't enough to just say do not fear. There's got to be a reason. Saying do not fear without a reason is like saying don't get wet when you go out in the torrential rain. How's that possible? Well, the reason that God gives is very simple but very powerful. And folks, I think we need to get this into our DNA. I am with you. My spirit is abiding in your midst. What does it mean that God is with you if you're a believer? What does it mean that his spirit is abiding in you, that God is for you? We're going to talk about this more in a minute. And then Haggai goes on with further energizing. For thus says the Lord of hosts once more in a little while, I'm going to shake the heavens and the earth, the sea, and also the dry land. I will shake all the nations. So this energizing continues with Haggai turning to the future once more in a little while. Remember what we said about prophecy? It's not primarily about the future. It's primarily about the now. The prophetic future, the stuff he's talking about, is derived from the prophetic now. So if we respond to what God is doing now, there's these future promises. So what does this pro prophecy mean? I'm going to shake the heavens and the earth. Well, a little later in this chapter, uh, he spells out what it is. He says again, once again, in verses 21 and 22, that he's going to shake the nations. And then he, God makes it clear that that means he's going to overthrow thrones and the kingdoms of this world. Why is God talking about that? Well, remember, he is trying to reassure a frightened people. These people are afraid of the nations. They're afraid of Babylon. 
They're afraid of somebody coming in and doing what was done to them before. And so God is reassuring them, saying, no, no, I'm the one that's going to shake the nations. Well, this passage here, there's further biblical light shown on this in the book of Hebrews. So let's look there. This is uh, a reference directly to this passage by the author of Hebrews. It says in Hebrews 12, 26 and 27, and his voice shook the earth then. And, and the context of this passage is the, the author of Hebrews is talking about the experience at Mount Sinai. When the law was given to Moses, and remember it said that the mountain was quaking and trembling, the people were afraid there was cloud and fire on top of the mountain. So in verse 26, his voice shook the earth then at Mount Sinai, but now he is promising yet once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heaven. This expression yet once more denotes the removing of those things which can be shaken as of created things, so that those things which cannot be shaken may remain. Created things are gonna be shaken. And in your life, in my life, guess what? They get shaken now. But ultimately, everything that is created is gonna be shaken. Including, by the way, the angelic powers of darkness the Satan and his kingdom, they are created. Make no mistake, they are created. And the heavens and the earth, everything is going to be shaken. So this kind of raises a question for you and me today, doesn't it? Where is the weight of my life resting? Where is my confidence? Is it in created things? Is it in things that I can see, you know, my bank account, my job, my home, these things? Everything that is created is subject to being shaken. And so how important is it for us to know where our confidence is rooted and grounded in the unshakable person and kingdom of God every single day? With God's presence in your life, you cannot be shaken because he cannot be shaken. So Haggai continues after talking about the nations being shaken, and this is amazing here. They will come with the wealth of all the nations, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. Listen to this, the latter glory of this house will be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts, and in this place I will give peace declares the Lord of hosts. This energizing word continues with this incredible claim. God is saying, even though this place looks a lot smaller to you, even though you may think it's nothing in comparison with the other temple that's being built, the other temple that was built, that was destroyed, this new temple is going to have a glory about it that is greater than Solomon's temple. And to appreciate that, you have to go back to the story in 2 Chronicles 7, 1 Kings 8, about the glory of Solomon's temple. This is an amazing scene. This is maybe like, I don't know, in my judgment, the pinnacle of the history of Israel, where Solomon prays this prayer, the temple, this beautiful, incredible temple is 
filled with smoke, the priests are driven out because the glory of God has come upon this temple. Fire falls and consumes a sacrifice. The glory of God is here. And then, do you remember in Ezekiel chapter 10 and 11? Ezekiel has a vision of the glory of God leaving the temple. Check it out. Ezekiel 10 and 11. He sees the cloud of glory almost reluctantly leaving Solomon's temple in stages. A little bit at a time. The glory departed Solomon's temple before it was destroyed in 586 BC. The glory of God wasn't there when it was overrun. And now this promise says the latter glory, the glory of this new smaller temple that isn't, doesn't match up, this glory is going to be greater. Well, how does that work? A young couple, 500 years later, a little more than 500, brought their baby son to the temple. Just like any other good Jewish family of the day would do, your first son was brought to the temple to be dedicated to the Lord and to be redeemed. They brought a couple of turtle doves as a sacrifice. Their names were Mary and Joseph. They came into the temple and a man named Simeon saw them and he had been promised that he would not see death until he saw the Messiah. And he sees this baby. He drops everything he's doing. He comes and takes the baby in his arms and he says this, now Lord, you're releasing your bondservant to depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation which you have prepared for all the in the presence of all the peoples a light of revelation to the Gentiles, and what? And the glory of your people, Israel. The glory returned to the temple. The glory of God. Quietly. Nobody noticed. Simeon and another woman, Anna, were in the temple. They knew. Mary and Joseph didn't know. How silently, how silently the wondrous gift is given. This is such an important observation for us in understanding how God works. You know, we, and I feel this way, you know, I want to see God moving in a mighty way. I want to see the cloud. I want to see God's glory. I want to see things happening. I want to see the spirit of God moving in our midst. But you know, it's easy for me to forget that God delights. He really delights in showing glory through ordinary things, things that we overlook. This is just another young family coming into the temple, but the greater glory returned to the temple. And the verse says, I will bring peace. Jesus Christ, the Prince of Peace. There's more that God is doing than we think, oftentimes. 
We underestimate what God does through the ordinary acts of faithfulness, the ordinary acts of worship, the ordinary acts of caring for one another, the ordinary acts of being a community. We overlook this and we think, oh, that's really nothing. Where's the, where's the cloud? And God says, I'm in that. I'm working through that. Just like with Jesus in the temple, I'm working through that in ways you couldn't possibly imagine. And you know what? The glory of God returning to the temple goes even a step further. 2 Corinthians 6, 16. For we are the temple of the living God. Just as God said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God. They shall be my people. We are the temple of the living God. The prophets didn't see this. They couldn't see this coming. God hid it from everyone. He certainly hid it from the dark powers of this earth. That his ultimate design was not to dwell in a building. His ultimate design was to dwell in people, in us. Do you know what that means? Where is the glory of God today? Where is the glory of the temple? Well, his glory is in us. And it's on us. Because he dwells in us. And you say, wait a minute, I, I, I'm looking around, I look at myself, I'm looking around, I say, okay, we're ordinary people. That's all we are. But God's presence in you is powerful. He's doing more than you think. He's doing more than you recognize when you walk in obedience to him. So I want to talk for a minute about the last verse in the book. The last verse in Haggai. I think this verse unpacks another significant aspect of prophetic ministry and something else in connection with all this that we need to hear. So Haggai 2.23, on that day, declares the Lord, and, and that is, he's referring to the day when the heavens and the earth are shaking. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, my servant, declares the Lord, and I will make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. So there are two very powerful, energizing, prophetic words given in this verse. One of them is a word of affirmation. Do you need affirmation? We all need affirmation. Jesus received affirmation from the Father. Remember, this is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. There is an affirmation for Zerubbabel here. And then there is also a vesting of authority, this business about the signet ring. The signet ring for a king was the symbol of his authority. If you had the king's signet ring, that was his authority on a document. There it is. The king authorized this. And he says, I will make you like a signet ring. In other words, I will vest my authority in you. And so this prophetic language, and it's very common that it, that it applies to Zerubbabel. It's an affirmation of him. 
It's a vesting of authority in him, but it also speaks forward. He says, my servant, Zerubbabel, my servant. Well, my servant throughout the prophetic books refers to frequently the Messiah. So this looks forward to the Messiah in addition to being something about Zerubbabel. And so this is pointing forward to Jesus being affirmed by the Father. You're my beloved son. Being chosen by the Father, the Son of God. Being vested with God's authority. What did Jesus say? All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Jesus has been vested with God's authority. Well, you know, these principles, it's the same for us, right? We need that affirmation. We need to be aware of that affirmation that's in the scriptures of who we are. What is your affirmation today? What is mine? Well, there's many of them, but what about, I am a child of God. You receive that affirmation today? That's your identity. That's who you are. My body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. And then we are vested with Jesus' authority. He says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, to his disciples. Go, therefore. That authority that I have, I'm vesting in you to accomplish my purposes. So, sorry about the small font that's not really readable. Uh, so, a couple things for us to think about from this incredible chapter two of Haggai, some things for us to reflect on. Some questions. First of all, regarding hope. Does my hope need a rebuild? Have I sort of lost hope? Am I expecting that things aren't going to work out and I'm just in that negative hole where I don't want to stick my head up? Well, the first thing to do is acknowledge that that's where you are. <laughs> that's the first step. The second step is bring that to God and saying, Lord, this is where I am. I can't generate hope myself. I need you to help me. And brothers and sisters in this community, that's what we're here for to rebuild this hope in each other. Second, is my hope grounded in things shakable or unshakable? In Haggai's time, the people were putting their hope in their paneled houses for a long time. That's where their hope was. But when Haggai confronted them, they obeyed. They turned to the Lord with reverence. They recognized that they had inadvertently slipped to where their hope was resting on created things. It was resting on their paneled houses. And God says, no, I want your, you to be hoping in me. Third, is my hope grounded in God's presence? That is your ultimate hope. Do you know that it doesn't matter what's going on in your life? When you have the presence of God in you and with you, abiding in your physical body, the Holy Spirit is, a temp is in your body as a temple. 
What issue can you possibly have that God can't figure out with you? What can happen to you where God says, well, wow, that's, that beats me. <laughs> I don't know what I can do about that. God has these answers for us. The problem is that when our lives are rooted and grounded in created things, and our security is in created things, we don't look to him. It's not a habit that we have. So every day in the morning, getting up, Lord, I want to be grounded in your presence. I want to rely on your wisdom. I want to rely on your presence in my life and not these things that are calling me, not the things that the world is trusting in. It's a process. And you know what? Hope, if you don't have hope today, you know where hope is born? It's born in the presence of God. You just get into the presence of God. You don't have to do anything. You don't have to say magic words. You just get in the presence of God and hope is born in his presence. And then finally, <clears throat> am I living in God's affirmation? Am I living in his authority? You know, I hope that every one of us who's a believer in Jesus Christ, who's here today, can leave this place affirmed by Jesus, affirmed by the Lord. And you can say, I am a child of God. That's who I am. And you can say, my body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. He is with me. He is in me. I'm on a roller coaster ride right now. I'm feeling like I can't even swim out of the water and get a breath. But God is present physically with you. He is for you. Can you say that today? I am a child of God. My body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. These are not just positive thinking ideas. This is the scripture, John 1, 12, 1 Corinthians 6, 19. I am a child of God. My body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. That is what we are rooted and grounded in today. And I pray that we will be able to take that truth and day by day, each of us build our lives on that. Get up in the morning and say, what am I rooted and grounded in today? What am I trusting in today? I'm a child of God. The presence of Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit is in me and with me. My body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. What in your life can defeat that? I ask you, you name me something. There's nothing that can defeat that. And that's why the enemy wants to distract us and get us thinking about other things and trusting in other things, and we forget. And then we get down in the hole, and we say, man, the whack-a-mole's happening. I'm dying here. Putting our faith and our hope and our trust in the person of God. Let me pray. Father, we acknowledge that we stand in need of this hope.
We need this awareness of your presence. We need this awareness that you are with us and in us. And so I pray, Lord, that by the power of the Holy Spirit, that we in our spirits, in our souls, would grasp this truth today and live it out, Lord, in the days ahead, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.